Let me run this by my lawyer is a really helpful phrase to have in your back pocket. Legal Shield has been giving legal peace of mind for over 50 years. They connect you to a vetted law firm in your state for an affordable monthly fee. Want an experienced set of eyes on a contract fine print? Or you finally want to get that will done? Legal Shield has a dedicated group of lawyers who have your back, no matter what the future brings. Sign up today at LegalShield.com forward slash iHeart. PPLSI does not provide legal representation or advice. See a plan for complete terms. L-A-S-I-K, LASIK.com. Have a ton of questions about LASIK? You're not alone. That's why we created LASIK.com. One place where you can go to find every answer to every question on your mind. Like, how much does LASIK cost? How long does recovery take? How do I find a doctor? If you've been thinking about LASIK, go to LASIK.com now. Yeah, LASIK.com. Easy to remember, so you know where to start. L-A-S-I-K, LASIK.com. Trinity School of Natural Health can help you be part of the fast-growing health and wellness industry. With an education that empowers communities, Trinity grads can change lives by applying natural health principles and techniques in holistic practices or stores selling nourishing health products. Offering 19 online programs that fit your busy schedule, you'll get training to help turn your passion into a career. Enroll today at trinityschool.org. That's trinityschool.org. I'm Talia Schlanger, and you're listening to Here's the Thing from iHeartRadio. The Netflix show Love on the Spectrum is a reality dating series, but it is totally different than anything you might have come to expect from the crowded, and let's be honest, often staged world of reality dating shows. The series is full of heart and promise, and it features people who don't often get the spotlight. My name is Kaylin. I'm 24 years old, and I'm single, and I'm looking for a boyfriend. Why do you want to find love? I don't want to die alone. Being around people is draining, but I don't like being alone. I like to be with my friends. I like to be with my family. I don't like to be really alone just day to day. So I think having love, having a boyfriend would really, I don't know, be helpful. I basically have every learning disability you could have. Um, Dyslexia, dyscalculia, dysgraphia, ADHD, and autism. Uh, It makes a lot of the different aspects of my life challenging. That's Kaylin Partlow, one of the participants, in a clip from the show. The subjects looking for love are all on different parts of the autism spectrum. And throughout the series, you see them navigate the pressures, struggles, and successes of dating life through swiping, speed dating, and yes, even ghosting. There are already two seasons of the original Australian version of Love on the Spectrum. The American version premiered earlier this year. Just this month, it won three Emmy Awards, including Best Unstructured Reality Series. Coming up, I'll talk with the show's relationship expert, Jennifer Cook, who is herself on the spectrum. But first, I spoke with creator, producer, and director, Kian O'Clary, and participant, Kaylin Partlow, who is also an autism therapist and advocate. I was curious about how Partlow felt this series compared with the traditional portrayals of autism we've seen in the media. Yeah, I think it's been pretty consistent in terms of portrayal in the media. We see a lot of genius stereotypes, people with incredibly high IQs, people who are classified as savants, and they're usually men. And that's just not the reality for the vast majority of people on the spectrum. We, on average, do not have genius level IQs, but 
Yeah, in the media, they portray autism as somebody who is a savant, who is a genius, who has these special abilities above other people. And that's just not the reality that most of us face. Kaylin, I know you answer this question in the show, but for our purposes here and for people who haven't watched Love on the Spectrum yet, do you mind answering it again? What does autism mean for you? For me, it means I've always kind of been a loner and not by choice. It's always been kind of difficult to connect to people um, and kind of form those relationships and then maintain those relationships. I think when I was younger, I was missing a lot of those skills. And now as an adult, I'm missing a lot of opportunities sometimes. Um, It also means sensory sensitivities and a lot of routines. Yeah. So when you first heard about this show, Love on the Spectrum, and the idea that it would be a spectrum of people with a range of presentations of autism, what was your reaction to the idea of this show? Well, I loved the Australian version. I loved both seasons. Uh, I loved the diversity that they tried to accumulate for everybody in the series. And even the amount of like orientations that they had, not everybody was straight. And I thought that was really important. Yeah, for sure. And Kian, I want to know, you, you've you said that after doing two seasons of the show in Australia, you've said that it was important for you to bring the show to the U.S. Why is that? Well, look, it was just a great opportunity to make a show that will potentially reach an even wider audience, you know, a bigger audience. So mm-hmm. it was just a great opportunity to keep exploring that, the diversity of the spectrum, but not just reaching a wider audience, but exploring even further. You know, everybody is so different. We're not fictionalizing anything. We're not over-dramatizing things. We're not editing things to look a certain way. So it's just a, a great way for people to get to know people and hopefully to have some fun in the process and enjoy the experience of, you know, watching their stories unfold. You know, we also get messages from people on the spectrum themselves, families, people just saying what a difference it's made to them and to their lives, which is great. So it's just great to be able to have this platform. When people see a story of someone like Kaylin, you know, she was so important to include because Kaylin presents in a way that people are very surprised that she's on the spectrum. And that's really important because it's that invisible thing, you know? Yeah, I think people tend to equate high-functioning autism to easy autism. And it's not that. It might be easier for those around me, but it doesn't necessarily mean that my experience is easy. I have a lot of language, and so it can kind of throw people off to learn that I have a disability that can impact my communication just because my expressive language is so good. But that doesn't account for the social anxiety that I'm feeling, and it doesn't certainly account for the isolation that I've experienced as a result of having a brain that is wired differently. Is there a term that you prefer to high-functioning that you like people to use? Sometimes if you're trying to describe somebody as, you know, oh, this person is autistic, rather than using high or low-functioning as descriptors, you might say instead, they're autistic, they're language-abled, or they're autistic and they have language deficits or language impairments or language difficulties, which is kind of a mouthful, but it might give you a better idea of the person that they're talking about. Kian, I was very curious about how you went about finding blind dates for people or deciding deciding whether even to draw on the neurodivergent or neurotypical communities when you're setting up individual participants. Maybe you can say a bit more about that. Yeah, well, I guess the one element of the series that is, I guess, or constructed or the one element of the series that we do as producers kind of create is that we find matches for people. And that's mainly because if we were just following someone on their dating journey, 
not a lot might happen in some cases. For example, Subod, who'd never been on a date in his entire yeah. life. So he was kind of really hoping we could help him with that. His family were hoping we could really help him with that. So I guess in terms of how we look for people and how we find people, it's very different depending on the person. So it's all about getting to know people really well. And then we have our production team. And as producers, we kind of act as matchmakers as best we can. The main thing we try and do is match people that we think will at least have something in common, get along. Even if something romantic doesn't happen, they might find a friend. That's kind of what we hope for. And yeah, we, we find people in all different sorts of ways, again, depending on who the person is that we're trying to match. Kaylin's still hoping to find someone, but you know, there's always time, Kaylin. You've had a lot of interest since the show, I believe. Yeah, I have had a lot. I can't say that that interest has always been reciprocated, but um, there has been quite a bit of interest. I bet. So there was was quite a different technique for you. We saw you go to a speed dating event to meet potential dates. Can you talk me through that? What was that experience like for you? Well, I had never been speed dating before, uh, so I wasn't sure what to expect. But once I started, I realized how efficient it was in terms of time. Um, You Mm kind of get to know people very quickly, and so maybe you don't know everything about them, but you know at the very least if you're interested in seeing them again. And so I thought that was a really efficient way to date, and honestly, more people should try it. We also, I mean, we also saw you do some adventures in online dating. Can you speak a little bit about what that experience is like, online dating? Online dating has not been fruitful, and I don't know that it it will be, even given time. It's been a couple years now, and it's just not gone very well, and I couldn't tell you why. I... Because I'm sure there are plenty of nice guys out there. It's just finding them and connecting with them is the hard part. Yes. You were quite funny in talking on the series about a particular trend that you noticed in many men's photos. And I think anybody who's listening who's done online dating can relate to this. The dead animals and particularly the dead fish every time. (laughs) And, you know, I said it. Somebody asked me this the other day. I said, you know, maybe... This might be a little gross, but is the fish meant to be like a a euphemism for something? Is it supposed to represent something? Because there's just so many people (laughs) who are holding up the fish. There's got to be some significance. Either that or my other thought was, is it that they're showing that they are a good provider? Because we go to the grocery store. So (laughs) that's great, but it's not very necessary. That would definitely be a more appealing photo, full grocery cart, and look, I can yeah, pay for the groceries. Yeah, if you know how to grocery can... shop, that's fantastic. That's a life <laughs> skill. Lots of people don't know how to do that, but I'm not particularly impressed by fishing. So, Caitlin, I know you answered this question on the show, but I am going to ask it to you because I think it sets up a good context for the way that we're talking about this. What does autism mean for you in a dating context? I think for dating, it means that I'm more careful and maybe picky or choosy about who I'm spending time with. Mm-hmm. Um, I've had a couple experiences where I've allocated my time towards somebody only to find out that they're not somebody who is compassionate to people with disabilities, even before finding out that I am a person with a disability. And that's really important to me. So uh, me aside, if they cannot have compassion or understanding for other people, disabled or otherwise, that's not somebody I'm going to want to spend my time with. So it's made me more picky, I think, in that regard. And it's also kind of harder to relate and to connect to people just because my hobbies and interests have never been what's been considered typical or normal. Um, And even if they were something that was typical or normal, they would be more intense than what would be normally expected of somebody. So that can make it harder to connect with other people. 
That's really interesting that there would be a period of time where you get to know somebody's general attitudes towards people with maybe neurodivergence without even knowing that the person that they're on a date with, who is you, is part of that community. How do you decide when to share that part of yourself with somebody that you're getting to know? I think I've had the, you know, the experience of being on the show and it has made me more confident in disclosing that information to people and not being afraid just because I think I know how to handle it now. I've come into so much contact with success that I'm able to do it and not feel so nervous about it. But otherwise, I would say that I don't usually lead with that information. I try to get to know them first. And if it's relevant to the conversation or if I think it'll be useful for some reason, then I'll share that. But usually I'll wait until I get a little bit closer to them. Yeah. Kian, can you tell me a bit about your approach as a filmmaker to capture these really intimate moments, but also, I guess, not be in the way of what was unfolding? Mm. Yeah. So the way I like to work, we just try to have a really small footprint. And I think that just really helps to, I guess, make people feel comfortable and for people to sometimes forget that we're around and to be able to capture things that are really truthful and honest. When we're filming dates, we we try and hang quite far back and use longer lenses. So we're just trying to be as low impact as possible. And I think that helps to tell those stories in a in a way that feels real. Kaylin, I've seen some of your social media and that people have commented publicly on your posts to tell you how much your participation means to them. Can you say a little bit about what the reaction has been like for you in particular? I kind of knew that it was going to be, I would gain some followers and people would message, but I never could have predicted the amount of people who are so impressed and so inspired by it. Um, And more importantly, the people that relate to me, I kind of thought I was an outlier in terms of just where my specific deficits are in terms of relating to autism and the things that I struggle with. I kind of thought I was a bit unusual. You know, I've seen bits and pieces of myself in other autistic people around me but I've never met somebody who was truly like me, if that makes sense, Mm -hmm. especially in an adult. And so seeing that on social media, getting messages from other autistic women saying, I relate to you for all these reasons and giving all this specific information that they have in common with me after seeing my story. I don't even know the word for it. Flabbergasted, surprised, um, encouraged. I don't, all of those, you know, it's been wonderful. That's gotta be pretty cool. I mean, It's amazing. What were you hoping would happen when you participated in the show in the first place in terms of how autism is represented on screen? I was hoping, kind of like Kian's talked about before, to bring some awareness to just the different parts of the spectrum and how it can show up differently for different people. That aside, I was kind of just expecting to have fun. You know, I've never experienced anything like this. Most people probably haven't experienced anything like this. And so I was just hoping for kind of a new experience to do something fun. Um, And it's met and exceeded my expectations. From Love on the Spectrum, that's director Kian O'Clary and participant Kaylin Partlow. If you love conversations about real people's stories, check out our episode with documentary filmmaker Ken Burns. I would just suggest, too, that these big themes, these big stories, the constituent building blocks are these intimate bottom-up stories more often than not. 
of people that you don't know. And so, like William Blake, we're finding the world in a grain of sand. And that changes, particularizes, literally atomizes the way you tell these stories. So it isn't just the 30,000 feet great man history of the presidency and generals and wars. It's something that is bottom up. And you and you touch on the African-American experience, which is in almost every film we've made. And when you learn from so-called ordinary people, then it sort of mitigates the tension of the big idea. Hear the rest of the conversation with Ken Burns at heresthething.org. When we return, autism advocate Kaylin Partlow shares what she feels is most misunderstood about the spectrum. Let me run this by my lawyer is a really helpful phrase to have in your back pocket. Legal Shield has been giving legal peace of mind for over 50 years. They connect you to a vetted law firm in your state for an affordable monthly fee. Want an experienced set of eyes on a contract fine print? Or you finally want to get that will done? Legal Shield has a dedicated group of lawyers who have your back, no matter what the future brings. Sign up today at LegalShield.com forward slash iHeart. PPLSI does not provide legal representation or advice. See a plan for complete terms. L-A-S-I-K, LASIK.com. Have you been thinking about LASIK but not sure if you're a candidate? Just go to LASIK.com slash quiz and take our free candidacy quiz. In just a few minutes, you'll know if LASIK is likely right for you. And if it is, we'll connect you with experienced LASIK doctors in your area. Start your journey towards 2020 vision. Take our free candidacy quiz at LASIK.com slash quiz. Yeah, LASIK.com. Easy to remember, so you know where to start. L-A-S-I-K, LASIK.com. Trinity School of Natural Health can help you be part of the fast-growing health and wellness industry. With an education that empowers communities, Trinity grads can change lives by applying natural health principles and techniques in holistic practices or stores selling nourishing health products. Offering 19 online programs that fit your busy schedule, you'll get training to help turn your passion into a career. Enroll today at trinityschool.org. That's trinityschool.org. I'm Talia Schlanger, and you're listening to Here's the Thing. Director Kean O'Clary had made two seasons of the series when he set out to film the U.S. version of Love on the Spectrum. I wondered if he ever felt pressure about the show's portrayal of the autistic community. Yeah, there is a sense of, like, a weight of responsibility that these stories are, you know, probably one of the biggest representations of autism now in the media. So given they are real people's stories, that's kind of the most comforting thing for me is that, you know, these are we're just we're trying to give voice to people to tell their own stories mm-hmm. as much as we can, which is why we have those master interviews where people are looking down the barrel. It looks like they're looking straight at the audience. They're looking at me through a mirror thing. Just things like that that just help to feel like we're giving people a voice rather than trying to present people. To, to, yeah, if that of course. Makes sense. Kaylin, do you feel that public views are changing or evolving about autism? I think so. I think some countries are doing really well and some countries are not quite caught up in terms of accurate information or information at all. And so I think in some places and in some aspects, we're doing really well in terms of autism awareness. And in some places and some aspects, there's lots of work to be done. What do you wish that more people understood about autism? I think something important to 
be considered and to be understood by people about autism would be just that autism can present in so many ways and that you shouldn't make assumptions about the autistic person that you are meeting based on the last autistic Mm. person that you've interacted with. So they say once you've met one person with autism, you've met one person with autism. And we're all so incredibly different that there are going to be traits that we have in common and similarities that we'll have between us. But the way that those present in each person is going to be so different. Yeah. I'm wondering what are some things that you love and appreciate about your own autism? One thing I really like is my ability to have great passion for the work that I'm doing, be that with dogs or with children. I think I've just been really, really passionate about everything that I've kind of set out to do in my life. And I don't know that I would have had that same passion and drive if I weren't autistic. Yeah. I wanted to read a quote from the Autistic Self-Advocacy Network. And the quote is, our society says that disability is the problem and that the solution is to cure the disability or to try and make the person, quote, less disabled, unquote. The disability rights movement says that people with disabilities are not the problem. Instead, society is the problem when it does not accommodate people with disabilities. Do you agree? And how can we change it? So I come at it from two angles, both as a provider of services for disabled people as well as a disabled person myself. There are definitely some systemic and societal problems that if they were removed, our lives would be significantly easier. That said, there is no amount of societal changes that is going to give somebody the ability to communicate without being taught. That doesn't mean that they're broken. That doesn't mean that there's something wrong with them. It just means they need to be taught in a way that they can understand. Like all people, all people have skills to learn. All people have things that they need to learn in their lives. And no amount of turning the lights down or changing the physical environment is going to give somebody an ability that they didn't have before. That is so well explained, and it's also so applicable just to humanity in general, to the the human experience. It is. And I think people might criticize me for saying that. But like you just said, it's it's so applicable to humanity, not just the disabled portion of humanity. It is for everybody. Accommodations are wonderful and they do help a lot of people and they help for a lot of different things. Um, But it is not going to cure the problem. Not to say that being disabled is a problem that needs to be cured, but just to say that if you are having a difficulty, a societal change might help you. A systemic change might help you. But depending on what it is, it also might not help you. I've enjoyed talking to you both so much. Thank you. I've learned a lot and I've, I've really loved watching this series. So Kaylin, thank you. And Kian, thank you so much. No, thanks for having us. It's great. Director Kian O'Clary and Kaylin Partlow from Love on the Spectrum. My next guest, Jennifer Cook, is a speaker, consultant, autism advocate, and the author of several books on autism, including her memoir, Autism in Heels, the untold story of a female life on the spectrum. Cook works as a dating coach with the participants on the Netflix show, Love on the Spectrum. She brings her own experience as a person with autism to her work, and she really tailors her help to suit each individual's particular needs. Before we talked about the show itself, I wanted to hear how she defines autism in her own words. So the technical answer is going to be that it's a a neurological, a neurodevelopmental disorder. And you can certainly say that that is true. It's, uh, you know, clinically it's a disability and that's how any professional is going to go ahead and describe it. However, that being said, I think it's more like a constellation. Hmm. You know, 
if you, if any of us look up into the night sky and we see, you know, let's say we're looking at the Big Dipper. Okay, well, we're imagining that there's a picture there. Those are all their own little, you know, stars in the sky. But if we journeyed on over to Mars and we looked up in the same place, we wouldn't see that same picture. That's because those stars are really, you know, in and of themselves, they're doing their own thing. It's together the cluster that we are seeing, that we're imagining together, we're putting a parameter around. That is what we then label the Big Dipper. That's a constellation, right? That's the same thing we do with autism. It's a cluster, a constellation of otherwise unrelated, that's what syndrome means, otherwise unrelated, you know, issues, challenges. I don't like to use the word symptoms because that to me, that sounds like, I mean, that could be a cold, Mm -hmm. you know, just sounds wrong. (laughs) But that we then associate together and form this concept that we call autism. That was very well explained. And given that it's a spectrum and everything is is different for every single individual, just as you sort of just made clear for us, because we're talking about dating and people on the autism spectrum dating, can you give me a sense sort of in general what some of the challenges that people on the spectrum might face when it comes to romantic relationships? Absolutely. You know, so you'll notice I speak in a lot of metaphors and that in and of itself will challenge a lot of beliefs that in fact, I've, I've, I've heard before, you know, you can't be autistic. You use too many metaphors for an autistic person to understand. And my point Mm -hmm. is, well, that's ironic because I am in fact, and I can clearly understand what I'm saying. So I think maybe that's not where the challenge lies. I think as with anything else that there are uh, different levels of ingredients in everybody's secret recipe and everyone's secret sauce. And it's sort of like going to Starbucks and seeing the menu where you can get a million different kinds of, you know, latte this and latte that and refresher this and whatever else. And it's essentially the same ingredients, just kind of mixed in different recipes, right? Well, that's what it's like being on the spectrum too. Mm-hmm. So it looks a little different because the end result of that recipe is going to be a little bit different for each person. But it's less of a linear spectrum and more of a mixology kind of thing. And if you can imagine that the same ingredients are going in and whether that's sensory sensibilities, whether that is challenges with social cues, the biggest one is what I call mind blindness, which is literally the inability to innately, organically step into somebody else's shoes, into someone else's perspective. We can learn to do it beautifully. We can learn to intellectualize the process that comes organically to others. But we have to do it intellectually. We have to learn to do it. So all these things add up to a cocktail, if you will, of challenges when it comes to making any kind of relationship work. And that doesn't mean even just a romantic relationship. It means friendships too and employee-employer relationships, pretty much everything. So if you know that a dating relationship, if it's going to work – be of any substance has to have a foundation of friendship first anyway, right? Then it kind of makes sense that you can understand if you're in a position where you naturally don't take somebody else's perspective and your communication, your social communication cues might be a little bit different. You might tend to go on and on and on when you know something well and not realize you're quote unquote taking up all the air in a conversation, things like that. It's doubly hard. Dating's hard for everybody. You know, it's not an easy thing. There would be no need for dating coaches, right? But throw these little challenges in the way. And again, with maybe a little bit more here and a little bit more there, the recipe is always kind of be the same. So you see a lot of 
masking sometimes and a lot of mimicking. And that's not always a bad thing. Right. I want to talk a little bit more about mind blindness that you mentioned, because I think putting yourself in another person's shoes or connecting with them by imagining what they might be thinking or feeling is a part of dating for lots of neurotypical people. So can you tell me a little bit about how how one learns to work around the tendency towards mind blindness when interacting with somebody else? Sure. You know, it's you're going to hear everything that I say is going to be applicable for everybody on the human spectrum. Yeah. I mean, that's the reality. Yeah. <laughs> Nothing that I say is is truly unique to people who are autistic. It's that it's life with the volume turned up, if you can kind of imagine, with all the intensities turned up. So that being said, mind blindness is not something you can train yourself out of. What you can do, though, is become aware that you have it. Mm. So just like I'm terribly nearsighted. I mean, terribly So I know very well that if I don't have my contacts in, what I see is a big smudge that perhaps resembles reality, but in no clear perspective. I know that. So I know I've got to put in contacts or I know I've got to put glasses on so that I can see, so that I can make heads or tails of the world. Well, it's the same thing. If you know that you're going to have to ask more questions that might seem obvious to others, First of all, nobody gets annoyed if you say, could you tell me a little bit more about you or could you explain more about that? Mm-hmm. Nobody's going to get annoyed when you want to show more interest. That's, you know, that's sort of a misconception. And this is one of the things I coach a lot. It's okay to not have it all together in the moment. It's okay to say, what's that like for you? I can't even imagine. Literally, I can't even imagine because you maybe couldn't, you know, <laughs> I can't even imagine what's that like. And I think their communication skills that truly would only benefit anybody. I'm thinking of a game that you sort of played with one of the participants on Love on the Spectrum. That was the ball rolling game where you sort of modeled what it's like to have a conversation. Can you say a little bit about that? Because I think it does apply to everyone, uh, <laughs> no matter. Yeah, absolutely. So we're using a, a ping pong ball. It was myself and one of the participants. Her attention was real short. And she would kind of be here, there, and everywhere. And that makes it hard to have any real connection with somebody else, obviously. You know, because if you're not playing almost like, you know, when you're in the pool or when you're a kid and you play that game with balloons and it's how many times you can both keep it up together. Mm -hmm. You're not competing against each other. You're working together, right? Okay. It's that sort of thing. That's what a conversation is. So among the, the dating tips that I give, you know, one of them is that you have to start with the foundation of friendship, but another one 
that I'll often say is that when you are having conversations, you are not interviewing someone and you're not also testing to see if they can keep up with you. This is not a moment to try to show off either. So what I wanted to do was ground her with a concrete experience that would go to get it at an abstract topic, the idea of being a conversation, right? Not being one-sided. And one of the things that I did first was I had a whole bunch of ping pong balls and we were on the ground and I said, okay, now what's your favorite color? What's the, you know, four or five questions in a row and I rolled them all at her. Perfect. So I'm going to roll this to you, but I'm going to roll a bunch of them. Ready? Yeah. Okay. So what do you like to do? What's your favorite color? My favorite color is... Do you like dogs? Yes, my favorite and color is like pink. tomorrow? Oh, that's a lot of questions. It is a lot of questions. When somebody asks you a lot of questions like that, it's hard to figure them out and listen to what they're saying, which means I didn't get to know anything about Abby, right? Yeah. Okay, so let's try something different. Will you roll the balls back at me? What's your favorite thing to do? I like to play with my dog. What's your favorite thing to do? Uh, work out and swim. Roll back to me. Okay, great. What do you like best about swimming? Because mermaids swim. But I don't want to go too far out where there's dangerous animals. Roll it back. You just gave me a good answer. Yeah, that's true. Sharks can be scary, right? Do you know what you just did? What? You just had a conversation with me. <gasps> oh my god! <laughs> so, what I did instead then, right, was then, okay, let me roll this question to you. And you're going to have to roll it back to me with an answer. And then I'll roll it back to you with a tell me more. And in doing so, you've got to adapt. You've got to move. You've got to shift. Rigid thinking is like being uncooked spaghetti, right? So it's that unbendable snap here, if you will, right? But that with a little time and a little warmth, like the little nice bath in the water, you can be flowier. You can be flexible. This is you literally having to you know, go with the flow, actually, and get that, grab that little ball, that conversational uh, nugget and keep it going. And that's the goal. What the best part of that experience was for me was seeing how she absolutely didn't realize what was happening until it was over. Right. And I said to her, you just, <laughs> you just had a conversation. Right. And it was this, whoa, I did moment. It's kind of like being a kid and you're on the bike and they're pushing you along and they're not pushing you along anymore. And you haven't realized that you're actually the one riding the bike by yourself. That's what she had done. You sort of, I guess, hinted at the the balance between helping her have a conversation that would be engaging for somebody else, but also celebrating the fact that the way that her mind works makes her an yeah. exciting person to talk to. So maybe you can speak a bit to this idea of as a coach, like how do you guide somebody in dating while also helping them to be their full selves on the spectrum? You know, I think it's just as any good, if you will, teacher would do, right? A teacher isn't a doctor and neither is a coach. You're not there to to fix someone because I don't believe they're broken, right? I don't believe that I'm in there to repair something or get the autism out of them, right? It's that. There's a very ableist, if you will, you know, perspective, right? Know that that's what is that what we're trying to do when you're learning social rules or your practice? Absolutely, at least from my perspective, absolutely not. Right. It's a matter of having multiple choices. <laughs> it's a matter of being a little bit bilingual, having social ease as as a second language in your back pocket that maybe you can use to express your authentic self as well. And um, Abby, the participant we're talking about, definitely she's quirky. She's out there. She's funny and if she were staid and reserved, I'm sure she would be fascinating, but she wouldn't be Abby. 
And so that wouldn't be putting her out there in a real way. And so um, if we want Abby to be happy and find somebody, which she has, then, you know, you've got to be able to do it, coach in a way that still, like you said, keeps that authentic self exactly. as that true, true center. Yeah. Yeah. You also mentioned masking or mimicking before. Can you help me understand those concepts a little bit better? Sure. And they're different and they can both work for you and against you. So start with the mimicking first. One of the things that you'll see with kids on the spectrum oftentimes is that they'll be able to script that is to play off of and actually um, reenact scripts from their favorite TV shows or books to the letter. I did a lot of theater growing up. I think that actually helped me in that I could pick and choose lines from characters that I played to then play characters in real life a little bit, not in a way that made me inauthentic Mm -hmm. or false. But if I wasn't really sure what might best fit this social situation, especially if it was around peers, that was my hardest. We tend to struggle the most when we're around our own peer group. Um, We do better if we're with somebody younger or older, or if we see a role where we are in in charge, we are, uh, or the subordinate. But when it's spontaneous, peer relationships, which of course, that's what dating is going to be usually, you know, that can be the hardest. So for me, I literally would use scripts. um, And I would use the different uh, like stage coaching, you know, that you would get from a director. And that's one of the hard things The scripting can be it can be wonderful it can, in that it, does, it can empower you and give you a vocabulary, but it can also be really challenging and, and cause dangers when you are not fully aware of the entire situation, the entire plot that you're bringing with, with that script. Can I also ask, like when you're doing that in that moment, it sounds almost like there's a split going on, like you're aware of yourself as a, as a person and then you're aware of a sort of script that you're trying out to fit into a social situation. Am I understanding that mm-hmm. correctly? Yeah, no, you are. It, remi- it really reminds me of, with again, with a foreign language, right? So if you're at a level with a foreign language where you can speak pretty clearly, pretty fluently, but you still are having to think it And then there's that moment after you've finished speaking where you're going, please, did I say the right thing? Right, right. (laughs) You know, I... I speak Spanish, but I can uh, I can think very clearly back to a time when I said damas y caballos instead of caballeros, which means I said ladies and horses instead of ladies and gentlemen, <laughs> right? And it took me a moment <laughs> to realize what I had done and why people were looking at me strangely. So it's sort of that same thing in in that you know you you are watching for reactions, right? And doesn't mean you're always going to interpret the the reactions correctly either. So yeah, there is that that momentary, it's like a lag, I suppose, you know, making sure you don't have to bleep something out. It's sort of like that in real time. And is that something typically that some people on the spectrum do in order to navigate their way through social situations? Almost like that second foreign language is social interaction? Yeah. Okay. It's exactly what it is. And so, and that's where we get to what we call masking. And masking can be conscious or unconscious, mm-hmm. right? It can be the, I am trying to quote unquote, look normal. And this is where I always point out that, you know, normal and typical are not actually synonyms, but yeah. And that's where masking can get very dangerous because if you are trying to, so desperately to be something else, then you are, you know, if there's subterfuge happening, I mean, you're literally, you know, uh, destroying your own self in an effort to be something and someone who you're not. And we, we can look at all groups in society and see where that has happened and why you then get higher rates of suicide and depression and eating disorders and self-harm. And that's what you'll see, especially among women and girls on the spectrum. The rates are very, very high. In fact, in my work, one of the things I'll say frequently 
frequently is that if a girl or a woman has an eating disorder, a true eating disorder, then that should be considered a red flag to consider whether or not she's on the spectrum because mm-hmm. it's that prevalent. So that being said, you know, masking can also be a way uh, if you're if you sort of know what you're doing, it can also give you a sense of control. And that's not a bad thing because you can feel a little bit more like, okay, look, when we put on our clothes every day, we're putting on a, a costume. It's not a false one. It's what we're choosing to present to the world. So in that sense, I think it can be a good thing. But yeah, it is very much like speaking a second language. Yeah. The masking sounds quite painful. And it sounds like it's very much based in a sort of almost like double think of what society expects you to be like versus who you are. Yeah, no, and you're 100% right. What it means is that I can mask, if you will, so well that whatever support or help I might need, you won't see it. And so you're getting this this sort of dual experience where you're probably going to be much more included, right? Like, I know I've gotten this a lot from the show, you know, and just in life, you don't look autistic, or you don't seem autistic, or, you know, it it sort of then lends itself to the like, you know, what is what does that mean? Exactly. And I, I know what it means. Generally, what that means is that because I've got high language skills, I mean, I suppose I'm the gift of gab word girl. So that makes it look like there's no challenges. But that's because I'm really good at mimicking right? At copying and then playing around with it and twirling those words into something that works. I'm pretty good at speaking a foreign language Mm -hmm. is what it comes down to. Right. But um, to the larger question just of, you know, uh, of masking and mimicking and where it all comes together is that that's one of the reasons that I tend to be pretty even flowing when it comes to language and uh, using the verbiage regarding the spectrum. I don't care much whether people say people with autism, person with autism, autistic person. Per, it just it doesn't. I, language is powerful and important, but it doesn't bother me so much one way or the other. I'd rather just make sure we can get to the nut and be able to have a conversation rather than get you know caught up in language or in, in the specifics of, of verbiage. But the one exception to that is the phrase high functioning or low functioning. I find that really disturbing because, well, so many reasons, but one of them is that you can be, you know, you can literally be a non-speaking autistic and have a verbal IQ in the genius range. So, I mean, <laughs> there, there is that, you know, but when you say high functioning or low functioning, you're generally not taking account or not taking into account the work that's going on to mask to put it out there, to be. And so if you're too good at it, if you're too good at your second language, then you know it doesn't look like you need support or help. And if you ask for it, which you probably won't for anyway, because you're not really sure what that would that help would look for like, it's going to seem more like you're being lazy or difficult or a know-it-all, that kind of thing. Right. There a suggestion that you might have for listeners in terms of terms that you do uh, align yeah, with? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I like to use uh, more or less obviously in need of support. Oh, cool. Yeah. Yeah. You know? Yeah. So I, th- I think that's just kind of what I say. And and it works. Um, again, uh, I'm hard to offend, truthfully, but I think that gives a I think that gives a little bit more um, onus to what's going on underneath. That's author and advocate Jennifer Cook. If you're enjoying this episode, don't keep it to yourself. 
Tell a friend and be sure to follow us on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. After the break, Jennifer Cook shares how the terms normal and typical mean two very different things. Let me run this by my lawyer is a really helpful phrase to have in your back pocket. Legal Shield has been giving legal peace of mind for over 50 years. They connect you to a vetted law firm in your state for an affordable monthly fee. Want an experienced set of eyes on a contract fine print? Or you finally want to get that will done? Legal Shield has a dedicated group of lawyers who have your back, no matter what the future brings. Sign up today at LegalShield.com forward slash iHeart. PPLSI does not provide legal representation or advice. See a plan for complete terms. L-A-S-I-K, LASIK.com. Have a ton of questions about LASIK? You're not alone. That's why we created LASIK.com. One place where you can go to find every answer to every question on your mind. Like, how much does LASIK cost? How long does recovery take? How do I find a doctor? If you've been thinking about LASIK, go to LASIK.com now. Yeah, LASIK.com. Easy to remember, so you know where to start. L-A-S-I-K, LASIK.com. Trinity School of Natural Health can help you be part of the fast-growing health and wellness industry. With an education that empowers communities, Trinity grads can change lives by applying natural health principles and techniques in holistic practices or stores selling nourishing health products. Offering 19 online programs that fit your busy schedule, you'll get training to help turn your passion into a career. Enroll today at trinityschool.org. That's trinityschool.org. I'm Talia Schlanger, and you're listening to Here's the Thing. While autism advocate Jennifer Cook is clearly an expert in the space, she actually wasn't aware of being on the spectrum herself until she was in her 30s. I was curious about how the later-in-life identification affected her. The phrase autism and, you know, well, women and girls in general, that they didn't go hand in hand. You know, um, it would have been more of a classically autistic child that would have gotten that diagnosis of someone who was nonverbal, really hard to integrate into society. That that was not me. Right. I was the goody good girl who, you know, was the overachieving teacher's pet. I mean, let's, that's, I'll just put it right there. That's what I was wow. because I was following all the rules. I was looking to see how to be and how to be or what got rewarded the most was, you know, being what the adults were telling me to do. I was not diagnosed uh, or identified or whatever phrase you want to use until after my three children. Now, my kids are now, I have a daughter who's 19, a son who's 16, a son who's 13, but this is going back 11 years ago. And at that point, I had really fought for my daughter's diagnosis. And I say fought for in the sense that she was checking off boxes, but wasn't quite, uh, well, the phrase was weird enough that I was told she wasn't weird enough to fit the bill. Basically, my kids were diagnosed with what was then Asperger's syndrome. You know, it's now just all considered to be under the autism spectrum bubble, mm-hmm. um, an umbrella. I was identified because I went through and really saw myself in my kids. Uh, my dad had passed away not long beforehand, and he had he was just a cl- classic absent-minded professor, and that is a real that's a persona of of Asperger's syndrome. So it was kind of like okay. I think that I'm the missing link between the generations because pretty dang sure he had it, so therefore. But I had to really sit back and go through all of these bullet points of 
how autism presented or how Asperger's presented, what it might look like, but all the ways that it quote unquote might look tended to be very quote unquote manly or boy focused, right? Like the questions would be things like, you know, does the child line up their toy cars and trucks? Now, I didn't have toy cars and trucks growing up. First of all, that question always throws me because doesn't one line up things that are supposed like aren't lines of traffic, lines of traffic anyway? But this would be the autistic reaction is that I'm questioning the questions. I'm getting right that there's the autistic reaction is that I'm getting into the nuances while missing the bigger picture. But what I could say that I did with my Barbies is that I would set them up in Tableau and I would take pictures of them and that would be their wedding albums rather or script. We go back to the scripting or script news stories that they would then re, you know reenact. Other little kids not necessarily doing that. Right. You know, they're not really interested in doing that. So for me, finally getting the the identification at 35, it it took me having to go through every one of those bullet points, unzipping them and saying, okay, well, what is it that in this, in, by doing this, in this behavior, somebody's trying to achieve? What is the need that's being met? Right. Ironically, I was asking the diagnosticians to change perspective, which was what I was not supposed to be able to do, only most of them were not doing. And it was by doing that, that I could kind of go through it all and say, here's why. And yeah, and that's how it happened. That's fascinating. Well, how did your life change when you came to that realization? You know, it was very much the moment of, okay, self-forgiveness. You know, when I was a kid, I used to think, I had somebody once say to me, you're too smart for your own good. And I, you know, that's an expression. And I realized that they probably didn't mean it, but I really took that to be the case. Yeah. And I thought, okay, well, you know, what do you do with that? I remember clearly starting to write a book when I was in fourth grade. I had titled it Smart because I thought that was the problem with my life was just being smart. Can you imagine that now? It would break my heart to hear a child doing, you know, Wouldn't it? that feeling that way. Yeah. But but no, for me, it was a great relief because it made everything else make sense. That I could be a genuinely kind, good person who also was clueless at the same time and, you know, seemed too smart to be clueless. It all just made sense. And so for me, that was a great, a great gift. Absolutely. You said a little while ago that normal and typical are not synonyms, and it, it sort of went by. So I want to ask you to please elaborate on that. Sure. So this is one that I, I really like staying in front of crowds where I can pick someone out of the crowd who might be, say, visually a minority. So I will tell a story. There was a very small woman who was, uh, turns out she was of Pakistani descent. And I said to her, would you come up here with me, please, on the stage and in making this point? And she was a spectrum mom. And I said, okay, let me ask you a question. Would you agree that it is less typical to be a Pakistani American woman than say me, German, Irish, French American woman? Because when we're talking about typical, we're talking demographics. We're just talking numbers, pure numbers. That's right. it. And she said, yeah, that's true. There are simply fewer. Okay, perfect. Great. And I said, all right, so we would say that it's that you are less typical. And then I said, but if I said you are less normal than me, what would you say? And she said, oh, hell no. And it was great because there's this little teeny tiny woman and she's just, oh, hell no. And 
I said, exactly right, ma'am. Thank you very much. You may sit down in the whole audience, you know, cheered for. And it was great because that's the point. One has everything to do with demographics and numbers and there, you know, it's absolute value stuff. There's nothing attached. It's neutral. The other normal is everything about judgment and everything about wanting to be something, wanting to fit. Everybody wants to be quote unquote normal, but do you really? I mean, we all want things to be easier in life. Nobody wants to have to fight a fight. I mean, I think that's normal and that's, that is normal. Yeah. And, I think, and I think that's okay. It's it's all right to not want to have to fight more battles than you have to already. Life is not an easy thing. But that being said, you know, there really is no normal. And when we are, if we are believing that by being less than typical, we are less than normal, then I think that's when self-esteem goes by the wayside. That's when you get into levels, like I said earlier, of depression and self-harm, of loneliness, of there being a great disjointedness between intelligence and career progression. Things just don't look good when you don't, when you can't find a way to see yourself in normal. Right. What do you see as the difference between autism awareness and autism acceptance? Or even celebration? To me, acceptance sort of implies that there's something that's not ideal that you have to accept versus even inclusion, or as you've just said, celebration. So talk to me about that. Yeah. Yeah. So inclusion to me, you know, like inclusion is that should be like, that is not something to celebrate. Like, look, we're being inclusive. Like, that's like being in elementary school where you have to invite every kid in the class to your birthday party. Do you want to be the kid that everybody had to invite? No, you don't want to be that kid. That's inclusion, right? And that shouldn't be the goal. That should be the baseline where you start, start off from. So to me, I think a lot of it, and maybe this is just the way mine works, I see autism awareness or autism acceptance. And I think a lot of it has to do with alliteration, to be very honest, and that it works out easily. But that's just my my head works that way. So I I see the A's and I'm like, well, obviously that goes together. But I think, yeah, you know, when we think of tolerance or we think of, you know, awareness or acceptance, it can be really hard to not like equate it with like an ingrown toenail or something that you've just learned to like... Except is there. Yeah. 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 Deal with, right? You know, I'm I'm on the board of the Council of Autistic Advisors from the for the Autism Society of America. And it was a huge deal to get to the point of being able to say autism acceptance because that was so, so controversial even to some beyond going beyond awareness. I like to push it. I, I like to say, can we celebrate in the same way that you celebrate Pride Month or whatever else? You know, it, it is by having difference that we come up with something richer, more hybrid vigor in, in our world. So yeah, yeah, I, I think a little bit of a little bit of melody to the tune makes ni- nice harmony. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so just to close off, then how can we all sing together? How can we all help people in the autistic communities to be celebrated in the way that they deserve to be? I think through moments like like this, through listening to autistic voices, I think for the autism community, it's up to us to try to explain a lot just without disdain, without, you know, there, when you've been through a lot of hurt, it can make you bitter. And I think, so you'll see that there, there can be a lot of bitterness or anger um, amongst those who have felt rejected or other for a long time. And that I think can be dangerous. So for the autism community ourselves, I think what it comes down to is patience and gentleness and kindness, that which we would expect and hope for for ourselves, for the uh, the rest of the rest of the world, if you will. It's 
willingness to not be afraid of the word autism so that when somebody's saying, golly, I think I identify with that there's something in there that makes sense to me, that the response to that isn't, no, you're not, no, you're not, no, you couldn't be, which really has more to do with the person who's reacting that way in the first place. It's about listening. It's about learning. It's about having more depictions like this show that are real, that aren't you know scripted, but that are respectful. It's not autism porn, if you will. Right. It's uh, it's not you know it's it's not playing to a, a disability that everyone let's all stare at the autistic people. You know, it's instead giving a platform to real people getting to be real people. Jennifer, I've learned so much from talking with you. Oh, I'm so glad. I'm just extremely grateful for your your clarity and your openness. And thank you so much for making the time to talk today. Oh, I really really appreciate it. it was wonderful. My thanks to Jennifer Cook, Kian O'Clary, and Kaylin Partlow. You can find Love on the Spectrum, both the Australian and American seasons, on Netflix. We're produced by Kathleen Russo, Zach McNeese, and Maureen Hoban. Our engineers this week are Frank Imperial and Brent Bodrug. Our social media manager is Danielle Gingrich. I'm Talia Schlanger. Alec Baldwin will be back next week. Here's the Thing is brought to you by iHeartRadio. Let me run this by my lawyer is a really helpful phrase to have in your back pocket. Legal Shield has been giving legal peace of mind for over 50 years. They connect you to a vetted law firm in your state for an affordable monthly fee. Want an experienced set of eyes on a contract fine print? Or you finally want to get that will done? Legal Shield has a dedicated group of lawyers who have your back, no matter what the future brings. Sign up today at LegalShield.com forward slash iHeart. PPLSI does not provide legal representation or advice. See a plan for complete terms. Managing your diabetes just got easier. The powerful new Dexcom G7 lets you see your glucose numbers on your compatible watch and phone without finger sticks. And because Dexcom G7 is the most accurate CGM system, you can be confident in your food, exercise, and medication decisions. And all those decisions can lead to big results like more time in range and lower A1C. Get started at Dexcom.com. Dexcom data on file 2023. If your glucose alerts and readings from the G7 do not match symptoms or expectations, use a blood glucose meter to make diabetes treatment decisions. For a list of compatible devices, visit Dexcom. Trinity School of Natural Health can help you be part of the fast-growing health and wellness industry. With an education that empowers communities, Trinity grads can change lives by applying natural health principles and techniques in holistic practices or stores selling nourishing health products. Offering 19 online programs that fit your busy schedule, you'll get training to help turn your passion into a career. Enroll today at trinityschool.org. That's trinityschool.org.